Tonight's scripture reading is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful that you've opened your mouth, that you have not hidden yourself, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. When kids are born and they develop, uh, we can't resist the game of trying to see who they favor, right? Is, is that chin from mom or those eyes from dad? You know, maybe it's an aunt, maybe it's an uncle. And whether you grew up with your biological family or not, you resemble them. You have their likeness. And it's not just eyes and ears. It might be gestures, it might be talents and skills that you see replicated in you. Well, the Christian faith teaches that all humankind, that means all gender, all race, all culture, are made in the likeness of God and his image. Yet there is a special supernatural likeness that... Uh, the children of God or the followers of Christ possess and have, a Christ-likeness. It's a family-likeness. And it isn't to do with eye color, but rather spiritual character. That's what these Beatitudes are about. What does the spiritual character of a disciple, a follower of Christ, look like? And you can see this from the opening context. Jesus, the setting here, he sees the crowds, and the crowds uh, had various dispositions spiritually, but it said he called his disciples to himself up on the mountain. So he's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to those that had made some commitment to him as a Messiah. And that gives us an important interpretive lens, because sometimes these Beatitudes... Um, are applied broadly. You'll see them on greeting cards. Excuse me, greeting cards. They, They appear to be applied to any and everybody. But that's really not the case. The application we find here is not that you're blessed if you're poor or you're grieving, but blessed are those that are poor and grieving who then turn to God and seek him in the midst of that. And we see this in the two different accounts. Uh, Luke's account simply mentions 
sort of the physical side of things. He just says, blessed are those that, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those that mourn. But Matthew adds, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? And so we see both and. And it's Jesus that then tells us this incredible promise that they shall be blessed, or you could translate it happy. They will be happy. In 2011, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution, and it was entitled Happiness Towards a Holistic Definition of Development. And this is responsible for the World Happiness Index that comes out every year. And they rank nations according to things like life expectancy, social support, uh, gross domestic product, freedom, uh, what is corruption like in the nation itself. And what you see here is that the happiness that Jesus is talking about here, while the the Christian faith is not... um, it does not reject or object to those things being uh, happiness given, right? Or rather those things producing happiness in us. Of course the just society is happy. Of course family makes us happy. Health makes us happy. But what he is saying here, that you can actually be happy without those things. And that's the striking thing about the Beatitudes that you might not rank, you might rank 150 in your own life on the happiness index, according to the culture, but you can actually be happy in a different way. Because Jesus defines happiness as a state of well-being in relationship to God. That's how he thinks about it. Now, this past week, it was my turn to um, get the stomach flu, and I know many of you have had that. And um, I was actually grateful because I got it right before service last week. And, uh, you know, God held me through. But then I got home and it was time. And, um, and I'll save you all the details, obviously. But uh, I will say this, that uh, it was, on the one hand, very humbling to see how one change, one thing can make me, get me so down and get me so unhappy and get me grouchy, right? Just the fact that I can't do what I want and I can't eat what I want, my happiness was gone. But I had some surprises. And that as I found myself throughout the week occasionally giving thanks to God. Thanking him for his mercy, being able to see his kindness to me. And so I experienced happy while unhappy. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. It's like a paradox. Psalm 1, the great gateway to all the Psalms in the Hebrew Bible, says that uh, the man uh, and woman that is righteous, meaning is in fellowship with God, relationship with God, They're like a tree that can bear fruit, whether it's winter or spring. They can be fruitful. The ultimate index of happiness is the likeness of Christ. It's character. We were thinking about Dr. King this week and his famous quote of the day he dreamed 
that his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. The idea of character being the source of happiness. So let's take a little bit of time and look at that together. How this family likeness develops. How is it that we become more and more uh, reflecting the moral beauty of Jesus? Now, uh, one of my professors in seminary, and uh, we've had him here before, is a New Testament scholar, Dan Doriani. Um, I was reading some of his work in this, and he said, uh, it is generally agreed that our temperament and bearing are, to a large extent, given at birth. Personality changes little through life. Character, however, is more changeable. People sometimes gain and sometimes lose their moral compass. Liars and thieves can become honest. Good politicians, policemen, and businessmen can become dishonest. The great question is, how does moral change occur? And I think our culture answers that in two ways. One would be, you need an attitude change. And that's certainly true, right? There's a lot of research done on positivity. Positive folk do better in life. They're more successful. There's brain research on the effects of negative thinking and the people behave. No one, no one can test that. But while optimism and positivity can carry you through some bumps in life, it doesn't quite carry you through the earthquakes of life. Catastrophic loss, decades and decades of oppression, waking up every day for most of your life with chronic illness. You need a little bit more than uh, Leslie Nope's positivity for that, those of you that are Parks and Rec fans. <laughs> even though she's just contagious in her joy, isn't she? <laughs> Love watching her. Um, the other way the culture answers it is willpower, right? Uh, Aristotle taught, uh, if you're going to be just, you just have to, to go and be just. If you want to be brave, just go and be brave. And again, there's some truth to that, right? Modern psychology would say the same thing. I was reading an article where the, the writer was saying, in a sense, you've got to pretend to be the person that you want to be. You know, there's some truth to that. We just don't act when we have the feelings. But that doesn't necessarily result in good character. In fact, there have been times where I've done, you know, I've reached the goal, I've toughed it out, and my character actually got more proud and boastful. Right? Maybe you've met people that have met that goal. They've hit that weight. They got that career mark they wanted. They just did it. And now you wish they would undo it. Right? Because their character wasn't changed. We find a different pattern here in the Beatitudes. And this is something uh, Doriani, who I mentioned, who has studied the parables, or rather the Beatitudes for 40 years, said, when you look at the Beatitudes, you actually find uh, there's some rhyme and reason to them. The first three Beatitudes that have to do with uh, blessed are those who are poor and mourn are, are Beatitudes of need. And then when you go to verse 7, you see action being required. Those are be merciful, be a peacemaker. They're actually uh, Beatitudes of action. But in the center is this summarizing statement that hangs over all of them that says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those aren't three, only just three different sections. They actually demonstrate a way to change. 
a way that we can be transformed in character. I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this, but for instance, those that learn, learn to mourn over their sin but hunger for righteousness will have a pure heart. You see how those are connected. Mourning over the sin, a beatitude of need, ultimately resulting in a beatitude of action, a pure heart. Or the meek, the strength to have meekness, which is found by the righteousness of God, enables someone to be a peacemaker because you can put yourself on hold. And so, and you, so you might say, okay, I see the need, I see the action, but where's the provision? Interesting thing about the Beatitudes, God is, seems like he's hidden until like a, a two-thirds of the way through. You don't, you don't see God's name, and you see those that will see God. The pure in heart will see God. But actually, he's implied all the way through because there is a comforter for those that mourn. There's a satisfier for those that hunger. This is actually a literary device that's used in the Bible. It's called divine passive. We're out of respect the name of God, as it mentioned, but is inferred throughout. And so... This thing gets us something that we really need because in those cultural strategies of attitude and willpower, everything still comes down to you. It still comes down to what you can do. There is no provider in the middle. There is no giver of grace in the middle. But in the Beatitudes, it's right there in the center. And it suggests, I think, sort of a, a radical thing for us modern folk and that is living honestly in the face of your need and taking that need to God actually results in character change. That's how it happens. So let me give you a few examples. We can't go through all the Beatitudes, but let me give you a few examples. So let's move into what this family likeness look, looks like. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or blessed are the poor. Now, poverty certainly includes uh, not having money, right? But it's much more than that. If you read about people that have experienced or talked to people in poverty, they face a poverty in many different areas, right? A poverty in health care, a poverty in education, a poverty in justice, alienation. But as we hear those things listed, we realize, well, what? You know, folks that aren't poor even experience that stuff, right? This gets to that spiritual side that Matthew's getting at. It might be right now you feel social poverty. You feel lonely. Or maybe poverty in health. You battle sickness every day. You're in a place of being poor and needy. Or maybe moral poverty. Maybe... God is putting his finger on an area and he's showing you, man, you know, I just am someone so given to being defensive or bitter. Just, you know, kind of looking at people as their objects to help me get by. Maybe it's a poverty of spirit, sin. And in that, we face temptation, right? When you're facing poverty and need, the temptation to steal, to manipulate, to be selfish, but for those that hunger and thirst for God in the midst of that need, that take that need and go, God, like Paul did, you know, what a wretched man am I. Here I am with my heart, and this is a beautiful thing about the Christian God. He doesn't look at us and go like that. 
he smiles and welcomes us in that need. That's exactly the place that he receives us. As the scriptures say, it's while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were powerless in a place of need. And you notice the promise isn't the the kingdom will be theirs. It is theirs. And so in that God opens your eyes, it's similar to a passage in Ephesians 1 where Paul says every spiritual blessing has been given to every child of Christ. God has opened up the banks. But they also find him meeting their place of need. Uh, I've had several conversations um, with uh, one of our uh, friends and uh, members in our community who has experienced chronic homelessness. And uh, she has said, uh, I mean, multiple times she's told me stories of her going throughout her day praying that God would provide and him doing remarkable things, providing for her as she faced either a night with nowhere to stay or food. And for you, it may be something in a place of need where God restores a relationship that's been out of sorts for a long time. Or maybe there's a turning point with someone you work with. And it was really tense and hard, and then it it gets better. Or he delivers you. I talked to someone this week, and they they testified. They said, I've been riddled with anxiousness in this area of my life, and I truly believe that God has delivered me from my fear in this one area of their life. Or maybe it's relief of symptoms. And if you have tasted that mercy... If you've tasted that mercy in your time of need, you want to take action. And the action you want to take is you want to be merciful. Right? Um, there's a song that uh, singer-songwriter Mike Ferris, who's been up here, he'll actually, uh, Lord willing, join us uh, beginning of Easter week. But he sings a song uh, called um, Mercy Now. And these are just two um, verses. My father could use a little mercy now. The fruits of his labor fall and rot slowly on the ground. His work is almost over. It won't be long. He won't be around. I love my father. He could use some mercy now. My brother could use a little mercy now. He's a stranger to freedom. He's shackled to his fear and his doubt. The pain that he lives in almost more than living will allow. I love my brother. He could use some mercy now. And when it gets to the last verse, he basically begins to say, or the writer begins to say, every living thing needs some mercy now. Who doesn't need some mercy in this room? We all do. Who doesn't need some mercy in the city? A lot of people need mercy, right? But how do you give it? That's the tough thing, especially in Washington, D.C., because we're allergic to the very thing that would enable us. This is sort of an interesting thing. Washington, D.C. is filled with people and desire, wonderful, that want to do good, nonprofits, social justice. But it's also a place where people are scared to death to live in need, to show that they're needy. Self-sufficiency, right, having it put together. I mean, we struggle with that as a community. And so you see the very thing that you need, which is need, and will make you merciful. So you can't do what you want to do. You can't fake mercy and compassion. It only comes through need. Uh, Many of you are familiar with Brene Brown. 
She's written extensively and so wisely on vulnerability and how we love to see ourselves as perfect and bulletproof. And I was reading one of her books this week, and she quotes uh, Madeline Langle and says, who says, when we were children, we used to think that when we were grown up, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. And I think the same thing is true about need, right? When you were a kid, you just showed your need. Maybe you grew up in a home that made you feel ashamed of that. That wasn't right. But hopefully if you, you were around some adults where you just showed your need, right? That's the thing that we love about kids. They're not pretentious. But then we grow up and we just hide it. So we begin to live in our need. And, and one of the things Brown says is um, through that, you actually see transformation. She was citing some work that came out of Harvard Business School where they saw that leaders that actually showed to their subordinates that they needed help caused what they call a snowball effect, where the whole company began to be revitalized because this leader was able to say, I'm not omnicompetent. I need help. And so, one example about how God takes need and leads it to action. Let me give you two shorter ones and we'll close out. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now there are different kinds of loss, right? Uh, There can be loss over a loved one. There can be loss with respect to injustice. Or it could be loss that has happened because of our sin. I love what Ryan said earlier in the service just about the way uh, that sin eats away from us. It does their self-harm. This doesn't do harm to people. It does harm to us as well. And so, there's a proper grief over that, that aspect of our lives. Uh, the book of James, in James, he basically says we need to learn to weep over our sin. We need to learn to wail over our sin. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a difference between what we would call worldly regret and godly sorrow. You can go to the book of Corinthians and read about that. You see, worldly regret is just regret. I I was recently corresponding, he's passed away now, but with a high school friend of mine who was uh, dying of cancer. And it had been years, decades since we had talked. And I heard word that he wanted to correspond and we began to correspond. And one thing became clear to me, uh, the great regret that he felt for the way that he had lived. And I, one hand, wanted to, to not lie about it. I said, no, I hear you. I've got a lot of it too. But let me tell you about the good news of God's grace. You see, the difference between regret and repentance is one paralyzes you, but the other energizes you. Regret is self-focused. And because of that, there's no way out. But you see, repentance is God-focused and other-focused. It's where I look at my life, I look at God, and I look at others and go, oh, this is what I failed to do, but then as God forgives me, I can move out. I can begin to change. I can begin to become pure in heart. Because my heart gets a washing. My heart gets honest. We try to do that every week here. I was reading back over one of the confessions of this denomination Uh, written in the 1600s, Westminster Confession, over their little definition of repentance. And something caught my eye I had never seen before. 
You know, it talked about the idea of, yes, God's righteousness and his law leads us to a place where we begin to mourn and grieve over our sin. But they said a second part, too, the apprehension of the mercy of Christ. This is what the book of Romans says. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's where we experience this amazing grace, where we understand that God took the initiative. Even before we knew we were doing anything wrong, even before we were clued in, I mean, how many of us, right? Have you ever had the experience where you've been living decades and decades and people have been living with you and you're just, you're just getting now, man, I can't believe I do this and they've been living with me. You know, they've had to live with this, this part of my character. Well, God has been living with it for, since the beginning. But what we're said, told from the beginning, he had planned to come himself in the person of Christ. This is what the cross of Jesus is about. Jesus takes on our poverty. Jesus takes on the mourning. He's judged for our sin. And God does it because of his love and mercy. And James would go on to say that actually that results sort of in being pure in heart. I just want to stress to you how important that is because I feel like we try to grow and transform by just living according to law. And that will not change you. The law, even God's law, has no power to change you in and of itself. I often say it's, it's not electricity, it's like a lamp. It shows us what love should look like. Only the Spirit of God and His grace can actually change you. It's like, you know, that great scene in Les Mis. When does Jean Valjean get changed? He gets changed when he rips off a priest, and the priest, instead of turning in him, gives him what he ripped off. It's in the face of kindness that he's changed. And for that... Pure in heart, as the Old Testament would say, circumcised of heart, as Jesus would say, if you love me, you obey my commandments, or a pure heart being an undivided heart where God becomes my first love again, or maybe my first love for the first time. And James would go on to say then, pure religion is what? It's visiting orphans and widows. Pure religion, a pure heart, results in action. But lastly, a quicker example Just to take one more, blessed are the meek that inherit the earth. Meekness is not being shy. It's not being insecure. Meekness is having the strength to put others before you. Meekness is the strength to to value others more than yourself, to let them go ahead. It's actually one of the things that drew me to my wife, Meg. Uh, She had a strength when we'd be in groups. A strength where she, other, she let other people go ahead of her. You know, there I was, you know, with, you know, just kind of like in there getting my own. And they're like, who's that over there who's not like me? You know? <laughs> Opposites attract. Christ is the ultimate example of this. We're told, right, he's in the very form of God, but he comes like a slave. So let's put others before us. And, and that results in peacemaking. Why is there such havoc in the world, right? Whether it's individual in our relationships or nation to nation, well, it's always driven by one party or maybe two parties that are striving to dominate, that are not meek. It's the opposite of meek. I want 
I take, I have to be right in this relationship. I have to always be the smartest kid in the class, you know. I have to be the one that always uh, has the project that gets the approval of the boss. Or nation, I have to have this. Even the church, the, the church who regularly struggles with, and even today, lusting for the upper hand in the culture, wanting power in the culture. But peacemakers only come from those that actually can be meek, that have a strength to enter in there. And Jesus, of course, was the example of this, so meek that he was willing to die under those hands. And so I would close by asking you uh, two questions. One would be to think a little bit this week on what likeness are you striving for? You know, you, you have an image in your head, maybe for many, many years, just like I do, of the person you're wanting to be, are you aware of it? And also, how much is Washington, D.C.? You know, how much are we trying to be in the likeness of that? But more importantly, how are you trying to change? And might you and I, this year, you know, throw all our resolutions in the garbage can and begin with need, the righteousness of God in the center of it, and watching it then produce a beautiful thing, a beautiful people. Please join me and we'll pray. Thank you, God, for helping us. Thank you for Jesus, your teaching. And we pray that you would apply it to all our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.